1: Every day, more than 115 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids. The misuse of and the addiction to opioids includes prescription pain relievers. Opioids, though useful post-surgery, they can become harmful in an instant. I'm Beth Bacall. Just the other day, Jamie Lee Curtis was on the cover of a popular magazine taking the time to talk about her story of opioid use. That's why I feel this podcast can be very informative. Let's learn more with Dr. Paul Sethi and Dr. Dr. Fred Munch my best. Hello, doctors. Hello to the good doctors. Opioid use is such a topic that is going to be so important. Joining us is Dr. Paul Sethi and Fred Munch, president and CEO of the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. What a good topic today. Opioids, what would be your initial statement?
2: Well, I think that I, I would start off by saying we clearly have an opiate epidemic in our country, and we have an over-reliance on opiate and narcotic medication post-surgically. Optimistically, our, our country is an, has an 11% reduction in Told opiates compared to last year, but based on the study and some of the data that we'll get into, we have a long way to go.
1: Why is surgery the gateway? Because there's pain? Because this is one way that the prescription gets handed over somewhat easily?
2: Yes, Beth, that's precisely it. Unfortunately, when you break your bone or tear your ligaments and require surgery to have this fixed, it can hurt. In medical school and our training, we're taught to rely on opiate medications because we want to control your pain in its entirety. We were taught incorrectly to believe that these medications were not addictive when used in the post surgery setting. Quite the opposite, and as a consequence, we have a problem to face. Look, doctors care about their patients. We don't want you to have a lot of pain, and as a consequence, we're going to give you maybe a couple of extra pills, thinking that we don't want you to be in a lurch, or alone, or uncovered on a Saturday night, or have to go to an expensive emergency room visit with the world of very high medical deductibles. The pivot point has to be that instead of doctors and patients both thinking about surgery being completely painless, we have to communicate differently and recognize that a little bit of pain is okay, continue to identify protocols and medical research that identify opiates as the second or third or fourth line in pain medication. Mm. And when we do use the pain medication such as opiates, we have to limit the duration and the total volume of those same pills.
1: So you're finding this is even more prevalent when it comes to women and millennial women. And you stated four specific surgeries that are leading towards a very large prescription of opioids, maybe 100 pills at a time. Is that correct information?
2: So that's right. So rotator cuff surgery, which is very common, is going to be just north of 90 pills. And joint replacement surgeries can be more than 100 pills. This reflects that despite our knowledge, we're still relying primarily on opiates for pain control, and and it reflects a need for change. If we look at all comers, 9% of patients are going to be persistent opiate users after surgery. That means three or six months down the line after their surgery, they're still going to be using these medications. A microscope on this 9% shows that millennial women, the 18 to 34-year-olds, are at the highest risk for persistent op- use, This is alarming and has to be fixed.
1: So where's the teaching coming from that needs to be untaught? You stated that this is the way doctors had been taught and why such a large prescription? Is it the drug companies? Is it old teaching that needs to be made new?
2: I think it's old teaching that, that needs to be made new. First of all, it's the idea that we want to be there for our patients and not have them have any pain and, and at any moment don't feel that they're in the lurch. And gosh, if, I, if you know I've operated on your son and I didn't give you enough pain medication, it's Saturday night and you have to go to the emergency room because... I, you don't have enough pain medication, that that's that's a breakdown, and I, you may feel that your doctor let you down. The other part is that the reliance on opioids as a as a primary pain reliever. We need better studies to show that there are alternatives and the alternatives work very well. We need more of this data, and we need more of this data to be disseminated in, in programs like the one we're doing right now.
1: Let me just give you a scenario. Somebody does need more pain medication. You've said twice that they need to go to the ER. Why can't they call the doctor and say, hey, we need more. This is still very painful. Why, why does the next best thing have to be an office or an emergency room visit?
2: Well, it's a very good question. So on a, on a Monday afternoon, an office visit is very easy, right? But on a, on a Saturday night... When there's no office that's open and you can't just call in an opiate prescription for a patient and they're in a lot of pain and you try to be thoughtful and only give them enough so that you could limit their exposure, they're suddenly in the lurch and in a bad spot.
1: And you have specifics that you need to follow when it comes to calling in that type of a prescription, correct?
2: You may not be able to call it in at all.
1: Okay, that's the piece right there. Tell me about the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids and how they're working to help this opioid epidemic, because you're talking about a lot of moms here.
3: You are. The families are impacted and the Partnership for drug Drug-Free Kids is focused on empowering parents and caregivers to support their children, prevent substance misuse, and intervene when a problem exists. And as you were saying, you know, parents, caregivers, and specifically mothers, are usually the ones that navigate the health information. They're usually the ones that are going to the doctor with their children and other family members. So what we focus on is making sure they're aware of options for pain management that do not include opioids, that they're empowered to speak to their physician and the healthcare professional. But we're also, because we consider the family members first responders, we want to make sure that if opioids are prescribed, that they're prescribed for the least amount of time, as Dr. Sethi mentioned, they're safeguarded and they're properly disposed of. And very often that requires family members to be actively engaged. And where we're really seeing that there's a need is when a family member, a loved one is struggling with opioids. And this is where parents caregivers, siblings can have a dramatic impact in helping them obtain treatment, helping them recover, and making sure that they can be aware of their warning signs if a relapse will occur.
1: It's very important to have an advocate. What's the proper way to dispose of opioids?
3: There's several, and I would say the most important thing is to dispose of them. That's number one. But you can go to drug take-back sites, websites, and find local places where they will take back medications, no questions asked. The DEA has a website. You can simply type it into Google, and there'll be locations that pop up. There's drug disposal bags that you can use to stop the active ingredient of the medication. But because getting rid of the medication is most important, you can throw it in a wet paper towel when nobody's looking, put it in the middle of the garbage, and just make sure to get rid of it. And that's better than keeping it in the house.
1: A lot of people flush them down the toilet.
3: I'm not condoning flushing them down the toilet, but if you're prone and you're going to flush it down the toilet, okay. Uh, It's better than having your child or, or a friend or a loved one sneaking into your cabinet, potentially taking a medication opioid that will, will create a long-term
1: dependence. So what I'm hearing from uh, both of you doctors is uh, we need to find you know the right way to reach the doctors, to support the doctors. Doctors want people to feel good and to be well. They're not looking to give large prescriptions, but that's just kind of the case that happens to them because of the specific surgeries. They're painful and they want to care for their patients, correct? Absolutely. And then perhaps a patient advocate or a way to have some accountability for people who are receiving this prescription as well. So it's a two-parter, doctors and That's patients, right? right? Yep. It's how can we best support you in getting this done?
2: I appreciate that. And I think the best support is, is to empower, empower patients, empower people. And if we, if we look specifically at our Choices Matter campaign, this is a patient education campaign where we're specifically providing the information about opiate alternatives, issues with prolonged opiates, such that a patient, you know, when you go to see the surgeon about a certain procedure, there's lots of information about which knee replacement and which hip replacement you should ask them, but there's not enough information about how you should treat your post-operative pain, mm. or what your non opioid alternatives are.
3: Mm. So our, our,
2: our, our Choices Matter campaign and, and the website that you can help direct people to, planagainstpain.com, I think is a very useful resource to arm people. Again, it's planagainstpain.com